0: This is weird thing of being afraid that nobody notices and nobody cares, but also this terror of um, of being noticed that people will people will read this stuff. Um, whenever I have published a book, it has immediately caused terror. Um, well, they've just there's this chunk of my book that's out there, kind of out of context, and um, you know what are people going to think of it? And it's 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 complicated. they actually caring. Um, about the work as I think the you know, most creative people do.
1: You're listening to The Breakdown with me, Chris Clearfield. The Breakdown is a podcast where we connect with business owners and experts to hear their perspectives on this crazy, complex world. I'm your host and fellow learner, and I'm glad you're here. You know, 2020 kicked my butt as it, as it has for, for many of us, um, and I think what's been, I mean, for, for me, I think I was already on the road to sort of being less, um, being less afraid of kind of my creative output. I, I had sort of, you know, after Meltdown, I didn't do a lot to promote the the book. I sort of had this thought, attitude that's like, well, it's out there, you guys can come find it if, if you want to. And I think most of that was around, um It was sort of an interesting intertwining of fears. On the one hand, it was around, I sort of had this fear of not being relevant, um, which I just, I heard the kind of, the opposite echoed in what you just said of like being at the center of things. So I really very much wanted to be at the center of things and I thought there were discussions I could contribute to, but I also um, was afraid of, I mean, was was afraid of putting stuff out there, particularly stuff that was not um, like, you know, I sort of had, I think, a joint fear of producing stuff that wasn't high quality on the one hand, as you were just kind of talking about, um, but also producing stuff that no one read, which is such an interesting fear because you're the only one that knows if no one read. You know, like there's there's kind of the con- yeah. conditioned on no one reading it. Like you're the only one that knows that, and so it's an interesting you know thing to thing to sort of sit with.
0: Yeah. It's weird. It's weird, and there's this fear that no one will read it, but there's also this fear that people will read it. Right. Right. Um, exactly. Strange torture. But this is too. This is too interesting to be to be pre-podcast chat. We should we should do the we should get get going. I think. Uh, yes. All right. Um, you know.
1: All right. Well, um, I mean, first of all, Tim, thank you for for um, agreeing to, to chat with me today. Oh, it's uh, my pleasure, Chris. Thank you. <laughs> could you just take a, a moment to, to introduce yourself?
0: Sure. My name's Tim Harford. I am sometimes known as The Undercover Economist. I write columns for the Financial Times and have done for about uh, 15 years. I write books, uh, the first of which was The Undercover Economist. And uh, the most recent is a book called The Data Detective, which is coming out in the US in February, which is uh, all about using numbers to think clearly about the world. And I have a... Some audio work as well. So I present uh, radio shows for the BBC, including a show about numbers called More or Less, and a new show coming about the the hunt for the vaccine. Uh, And I also have a podcast show in the States called Cautionary Tales uh which is all about mishaps, fiasco's, catastrophes and all, all of the stuff that you like uh Chris. Uh and so we we can definitely talk about that. So that that's what I do. I I create nerdy uh social science stuff and turn it into stories.
1: Uh that's an awesome way of putting it and it's quite um you know astute listeners will notice that that's that that's quite a lot of things that that you do. Um in quite a lot of different different channels, um, so I I think you know there's there's two ways that we can go. One one is we can talk about the the content of things that you and I are both interested in, um, and the other we can talk about the context. You know the context of doing creative work and and that. And I I'm curious. I just want to start with the content, um, and I'm curious. You know, as you said, you and I share. We, we sort of share a love of disasters and, and I think particularly organizational failures, although I don't want to put those words in your mouth, but I'm curious just how you, how you kind of started um, thinking about disasters as a, a, or meltdowns or or catastrophes, whatever the right word is, as a thing worthy of study.
0: Well, I mean, it's it's quite simple. I can actually remember exactly when this happened. Uh, I was uh, studying a a problem in the London insurance market, which was called the LMX Spiral, which happened in the late 1980s. And I was interested in it because I thought it would teach us something about the financial crisis, which was this, at the time, this huge and very hard to understand event that I was writing about for my book, Adapt, which is a book about experimentation and trial and error. So there's already a, a bit of interest in in the error part of things um, and as I was researching the LMX spiral I realised that um, well, it had been triggered by a terrible accident on a North Sea oil rig which killed uh, over 100 people uh, called Piper Alpha uh, absolute disaster awful and um, I mean, in terms of the loss of life way worse than for example Deepwater Horizon and um, And so I thought, well, if I'm going to talk about the LMX Spiral, I should probably talk a little bit about Piper Alpha. And my sister trained as a safety engineer, so she had a bunch of books on safety engineering that she lent me, and I started reading about Piper Alpha. And the more I read about Piper Alpha, the more I thought, well, hang on, this is, first of all, way more interesting than the LMX Spiral, intellectually interesting. It's much more compelling as a story I mean, I, I realize it's slightly ghoulish to describe it like that, but if you're trying to interest people, a, a story of life and death is more interesting than a story about people losing money. But I also realized that there were parallels between the, the interconnected systems on the oil rig uh, and the interconnected systems in the financial crisis. So I was reading James Reason's books. Uh, I was reading, in particular, Charles Perrault's books, Um, I know you're a huge fan of Charles Perrault in fact you you told you were the person who told me that Charles had had died yeah Um, and and so that was the point where I thought there's something really interesting here and so I played with those ideas in a chapter of ADAPT which was published in 2010 maybe something like that about 10 years ago um,
1: By the way, I'm just going to interject. I, I long for the day when I've written so many and enough books where I just don't remember when they were published. you know, like, ah, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah. Another seven or eight books, Chris, and you'll be there. You'll be there. It's
1: Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: so, uh, but, so that was a thing that I, you know, Perot's ideas, type coupling, that stuck with me. That's, you know, that's interesting. And I've come back to it periodically in, in my uh, other work. Um and of course when i read your book um meltdown there was this you know moment of recognition i was like oh these guys get it and not only do they get it but they've taken it so much further and come up with so many more cool examples of of what i was seeing in perot's work and reason's work that i mean i just i loved the book absolutely loved the book
1: thanks um you know it's interesting because you're i I didn't realize how How parallel those our kind of stories were, but I was also, you know, as you as you might remember, I was a a derivatives trader at um, during the financial crisis, and I was at a place that was very, you know, not in the kind of like not in the part of the the financial world that melted down. We we traded equities and and equity derivatives, and so much of what we did was on exchange, which is not to say that we weren't affected by it, but. Maybe I'm feeling defensive. We didn't cause it, um,
0: b- but yeah, my... yeah, yeah. You would say that. <laughs>
1: but you know, my um, I turned to Perot to understand what was going on in the financial crisis. But it really wasn't until Deepwater uh, Horizon blew up that I realized that it was so much, such a much bigger question than just what was happening in finance. Um, that's interesting. I didn't realize we had that kind of, that sort of parallel intertwining.
0: Yeah. And and of course, Perot uh, and James Reason as well. I mean, James Reason in his book, Managing the Risk of Industrial, or Managing the Risk of Organizational Accidents, I think is the book. He talks about the collapse of Bearings Bank um, because of the actions of the rogue trader, Nick Leeson, and the the way that you know, he he views that as a um, uh, as a as a quintessential example of a of an organisational accident, and he's he's instructing chemical engineers by saying, "Look at this thing, this this thing that destroyed a, a bank that was I, don't know, I forget about three hundred years old." Um, you know, this yeah. sort of thing can also blow up your chemical plant. So, Re, so reason James Reason was was onto the parallel in. You know, the late nineteen nineties, and Perot also has a, um, you know, has a section on on banking, and I interviewed yes. him as well for um, f- for Adapt, and uh, and he was yes, invest- investment banking. This is the financial system is more complicated than any nuclear power station I've ever looked at. Right. So, I mean, these guys were were on it. They could they could see the implications, but of course, um, for you know, my my own training is as an economist, and uh, we. You know we just don't think about systems in that way um it's not trained to to do so
1: i think you know for for folks out there who have read normal accidents um you know I, I i think one of the things that that is interesting about perot's work was sort of where he kind of decided to where he decided to draw his boundary which was you know, he sort of drew his boundary of of whether a whether an accident in a system was sort of inevitable, or whether it was something that that humans could prevent. Um, and I think that I think that boundary actually sort of did a disservice to the spread of his ideas around complexity and tight coupling, and and sort of systems representing these interrelated things that are hard to understand. Because I feel like so much of the conversation was around whether a particular system was set up for a normal accident or not. And I think, you know, to the extent that Andras and I contributed to the, the kind of literature here, I think it was basically we saw it as an indicator for lots of bad things that could happen, even if those things weren't inevitable. We sort of, rather than being a kind of a threshold test we sort of very much saw it as a there's a spectrum that's influenced by complexity and tight coupling
0: yeah i mean i i think that's right and um i mean you one never one should never be absolutist about anything said to tim in an absolutist <laughs> kind of way um but i mean one of the, the things that i th- that i love about perot's work and i love about the way that you you developed uh perot's work is that it's um uh it it's a fresh way of looking at accidents beyond things like the psychology of accident uh, the psychology yes. of error um and I don't get me wrong, the psychology of error is really interesting um yes. but uh i mean so so, so for example the, the stuff on safety systems so i I was just discussing um with uh, with my producer on cautionary tales um the possibility of doing a story about um, a safety system. Um, causing an accident because it induced this false sense of security. So people um, took unnecessary risks because they thought the safety system would, would bail them out if, if things went right. wrong. Um, so, I mean, that's an important idea, I think, and you, you can call it the, you know, the risk thermometer or risk compensation, or economists call it the Peltzman effect after an economist called Sam Peltzman. Um, but, uh, so that's one way that a safety system can backfire. Um, but of course, Perot says, "Well, no. Another way that a safety system can backfire is there's no there's no psychology to it at all. It's just making everything more complicated, and when everything gets more complicated, it, you know, then um, the system then starts performing in in unusual ways. Um, I mean, and we there's the the wonderful uh, example of the Oscars fiasco, which uh, you describe so well in Meltdown, and and identify this as a." As an example of normal accidents, and you know, as you well know, I grabbed this idea with both hands and put it in cautionary tales because I absolutely loved it, um, and uh, and should have shouted about meltdown a lot more than I did. Um, but but the, that idea of. Um, of the the you know the, oh, we've got not just one envelope we've got we've got duplicate envelopes for, for every movie um so you know if an envelope goes missing on one wing then don't worry we've got, we've got the envelope on the other wing and and it, well it just turns out there's just that's just a lot more envelopes for Warren Beatty to kind of be handed the wrong envelope and that's how the whole thing goes wrong and then of course as you know the um the solution which is okay we're going to have a Triplicate envelopes. I know. Uh, yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe. I mean, that could work, but, or maybe you haven't really diagnosed the fundamental problem in the first place. So, but I just, I mean, going back to Perot, I just love, you know, that way of thinking about how a system can go wrong, which is just a totally different approach to, you know, the psychology, the behavioral economics of, of human error.
1: Well, and and I think you, you know, you hit on something. <clears throat> when you talked about training you know you said as an economist we're just not trained to think in this way and i i think that that to me is one of the things that's fascinating about it i mean you look at you look at the 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 team at pwc i mean you know these are our partners at one of the you know one of the the, the major accounting firms in the world and um you know i i and we which we, we, we should
0: say they were the people in charge of the Oscar, yes. the Oscar nominations process and in charge of the envelopes who who yes. of course are not necessarily the, the the people you know I would rather trust a stage manager <laughs> to to put the right prop in the right person's hand at the right time but that's not how it worked out right
1: right exactly and i think you know there is a sort of um there is a sort of like I think I think what you can see in in the accident is I mean obviously they didn't show up to make that mistake right and but there's a sort of linearity or kind of um you know it's the it's the sort of homo economist uh homo economicus is that how you say it the homo economicus yeah. arg- argument kind of applied to a system it's like well people will do the right thing um and i I think you know we didn't talk about this in the book, but the other fascinating thing, so Warren Beatty, of course, ends up with the wrong envelope in his hands. but the other fascinating thing about that story to me is that it's very clear that they never they never practiced the unhappy path, they never prepped anyone for getting the wrong envelope they never you know, I mean, he's sort of struggling with his you can and I've of course watched this this. You know, twenty-four second clip, clip obsessively, but he gets the envelope. It's he, amazing
0: to watch. It's amazing,
1: isn't it? Right, you can sort of, you can see his kind of cognitive dissonance like happening in real time, and but but he he has no, that you know they never said hey if you know if should something go wrong just say you know ladies and gentlemen we're going to take a moment and then walk off stage and then come back with the right envelope. Um,
0: yeah, I mean you're right. I mean there are so many. I mean it's it is such a rich seem that particular problem uh, partly because it's funny nobody dies right <laughs> so it's totally. nice to talk about and it all happened on tv you can all go and watch it but um but i mean there are like as with many accidents there more than one thing happened and there was more than one way to prevent it and as you right. say uh, maybe if warren had been uh, you know a little bit more nimble-minded or had been a bit, bit better briefed um Or alternatively, the typography. Some people stress the typography, which is definitely part of it. That the typography wasn't as clear as it should have been. I mean, there there would have been a way to design that card so that the instant Warren pulled it out of the envelope, he would have known, oh, this is the wrong card. Like, there's no doubt. This is the wrong card. There's been a mistake. I'm going to have to start improvising. Um, But it wasn't clear enough, right? So... um, but yeah, I mean, so, so you know, there are so many, I guess one of, the, one of the, the things that's interesting about asking why things go wrong is that there is rarely uh, any one uh, reason, uh, lots and lots of different approaches to trying to prevent accidents. Yeah, I think that's a really important,
1: that's a really important point. Um, it makes it
0: harder for the storyteller though as as the as the the person who's trying to create you know a compelling book chapter or or a cool podcast about things going wrong um you really want to zoom in on one thing because if it's like oh there's eight reasons then it's like i mean and of course there almost always are eight reasons but um (laughs) but that's probably not the way you want to tell the story um so there's a there's a different discipline there as a you know as a writer uh how to be honest and not misrepresent what what has happened while at the same time not just befuddling people in this in this mass of detail
1: i i think that um i have sympathy for you and i in this in this plight uh although i do think as a you know i um let's see a lot of thoughts um I think one of the things that I pride myself on, and I think that I suspect that that I, I see this in the way your output comes out. So I don't know if this is a thing you you think about, but is the sort of the balance of kind of choosing a line and and you know following a, a kind of following a line of of argument or of reasoning, but doing it in a way that is sort of humble and. um uh i think rightfully skeptical of one's own reasoning if that makes sense um i think as a as a writer and i think there are incredibly successful writers that do this it becomes um like the line between storytelling and reporting can get really blurry um and it can get really easy to sort of ignore you know, I mean, it's it's confirmation bias, right? It can get really easy to kind of ignore competing interpretations or competing facts for the sake of the story that you want to pen.
0: Yeah. And when you're writing about historical events, or I mean, to be honest, when you're reporting on contemporary events, uh, it starts to get very interesting when you realize, ah, uh, re- apparently reliable sources disagree about what happened. Um, yes. You know, what do I do about that? Um, because nobody wants to hear, well, you know, it's complicated. I mean, yes, sometimes you can make a story that's Rashomon because there's there's all these different perspectives and nobody knows the truth. And that's why it's an interesting story. But usually it's just like, oh, there are these details that people don't agree on and they probably don't really matter, but I would actually like to be specific. Um, so yeah, well, you just got to make your choices at that point. Um, But uh, I mean, I I certainly I do find um, uh, I find myself getting more. I don't know. I don't know that I want to brag about how humble I am, but I find (laughs) myself getting more cautious as I get older and more experienced. Uh, Ah, you know, this is actually it's always more complicated. There are always shades of grey. How do I as a writer... Uh, enjoy the complexity and enjoy the shades of grey, and share them with the listener or the reader, uh, without just turning everything into into kind of shades of beige and brown instead, right. where it's kind of tedious and you never say anything because it's all so it's also confusing and muddy. Um, so, but that's that's a that's a good challenge. I enjoy that and i'll say that i
1: think the people that have the challenge uh even worse than than you and i are the people that are sort of you know the kind of it's the sort of line it's everybody from the line manager to the you know the kind of um the, the royal the, the the people on the royal commission or whatever it's like well why did this happen it's like well you know th- there's a there's a real desire to come up with an answer and often a scapegoat which is you know i think if you think about the way that we that the contemporary thinking around understanding of accidents um i love do you know that the sort of the idea of inside the tunnel outside of the tunnel
0: oh no it sounds good tell me this is this idea that um
1: if you if you sort of um if you think kind of contemporaneously with somebody who is involved in an accident or an incident at every moment, they are making the best decision that they can, given the information that they have the, the idea basically that yeah, it's sort of an assumption of positive intent, and this is really the idea that, that kicked Perot's exploration of this off when he looked at Three Mile Island and said, "This is not operator error. We did not understand the accident until you know months later if 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 at all, and so you can't expect the people in the control room to be responding in the right way um, yeah.
0: I mean, as I remember, Perot always telling me, telling me years ago, you know, we always blame. It's always operator error. It's always pilot error. That's what we always say. Right. And it's, uh, it's, it's almost never true. I mean, I think he would say it's, it's never true. But I, I mean, it is sometimes true, but, um, but it's true a lot, a lot less often than we think.
1: Yeah, and that's, and that's another interesting thing too. Is you know, I, I've been doing some interesting work with. Um... Uh, the the book, by the way, is um, The Field Guide to Human Error, um, which is a, uh, it's a, it's a really, it's an interesting read. It's Sidney Decker, um, and he's the one that, or that's the first place at least that I encountered this idea of the kind of the inside the tunnel, outside of the tunnel, and, the, and the, the idea of the outside the tunnel is the kind of reciprocal that when you're looking back at an accident, like, oh, you know that the outcome is going to be bad, and so you sort of assume that people are making mistakes. And really, they're just trying to do their their kind of normal good work at that at those moments, even if those moments turn out to be the kind of twists and turns that that ultimately lead to the accident.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, well, I'm curious about your kind of I'm curious about your your creative process. I mean, how did you go from? Well, first of all, I, I imagine that you know, you were, you were born and then you went to university after some time. And then, um, although that could be wrong, I, I, I don't know. And, 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 no, both, and then both of those
0: assumptions, are both, true.
1: both are great. Okay. Um, and then, but I, I imagine you didn't start out being, uh, a writer of books and columns for the FT. Is that, is that true?
0: No, that's, that is quite correct. I, if you, if you want, I can give you the very quick potted history. Um, I, uh, didn't know what I wanted to study um, at school I was specializing in, in English literature, maths and physics, which probably tells you that I was hedging <laughs> my bets. And then at, at university, I studied a course called PPE, philosophy, politics, economics. So again, hedge, hedging bets. And I had thought that I would specialize in philosophy, but in the end economics drew me in. I, I'd actually assumed I would drop economics, but, um, it, it pulled me in. And, um, so I ended up specializing more as an economist, um, I spent a year teaching economics at a, at a university in Ireland, University College Cork. I spent several years at Shell, the oil company, working in their scenarios team, which is a very interesting uh, multidisciplinary place where we, we come close to writing science fiction, basically. We are trying to yeah. uh, produce these long-range... Um, qualitative, convincing stories about the future, multiple stories about the future that are mutually uh, you know contradictory and and mutually exclusive, um, but that each one is persuasive and compelling and memorable. And then you, you then you people have to start wrestling with the fact that they can't all be true. And um very interesting in a number of ways. Um and uh and then I um applied for a fellowship at the Financial Times, um, a kind of glorified internship, uh, worked there for three months, was was told that they would like to hire me, but there was a hiring freeze. And so I went off to the World Bank for two years, and then I came back to start writing for the for the FT uh, full-time in 2006. Um, while all this was happening, you're, you're going to see that doing stuff in parallel is that there is a theme going on huh. um so while all this was happening while I was working at Shell I was working on a book um The Undercover Economist uh, didn't have an agent didn't have a publisher uh didn't really have a clue but I a friend of mine had who was a very successful writer had persuaded me that this would this might be fun and um I spent several years trying to get it published and it really kind of all came together in uh, 2005. Towards the end of 2005, that book was published in the US and was a uh, definitely a success. Not a, it wasn't for economics, but it, you know, it made an impact and sold well. Um, and I, you know, I was hired by the FT. I had a TV show in the UK, a short TV show called "Trust Me, I'm an Economist." But then that led to the radio work, which is actually much more fun than uh, than TV. So that's how you know not not knowing what to do turned into maybe economics is interesting turned into uh I'm interested in multidisciplinary storytelling that has some practical business relevance turned into I'm going to be a writer and a journalist and a radio broadcaster and re- and, and basically be in the right place at the right time uh, quite often I think I've been very lucky but that's the potted history
1: um and and tell me about what um what steps along that or what what moments along that kind of felt like felt like a risk to you felt like you were taking a a risk
0: that's a really interesting question and um i think i i think i've been extraordinarily lucky in that i think that very little of it felt risky or was risky in all honesty mm. so i I was offered a job at Shell um, before I did my master's degree in economics, for example, and then turned them down at the last minute to go and do a master's degree in economics. I got the the funding to help me do that. Um, So I thought, no, I'm not going to go and work for Shell. I'm going to do this master's degree instead. Um, I don't think doing a two-year master's degree in economics at Oxford University is a massive risk I mean, sure I turned down a corporate job to do but it's not that's not a big risk um I did I did I so I did management consultancy for about three months hated it and quit without knowing what I would do after that um that's about as big that's about as big as risk risk as I took that was in the late 1990s um but a, a friend of mine who's a game designer um said look you're taking actual hit points damage you hate this job so much you know, you've got to quit, and we'll we'll figure. You know, you're not going to starve. We'll figure something out. I mean, it was so kind of him because actually, like, what do you mean we're going to figure something out? I mean, like, I'm going to sleep on his sofa for a year. I mean, but what he was really saying there was, um, you know, you've you've got friends, and we're on your side. Not right. um, you will not die because we will make sure you don't die. Um, but that was all I needed. That just sort of that little shove. Um, so that that was an important moment um, and but um, you know, I I published I wrote the book while I was at Shell. I secured a publisher while I was at the World Bank. Uh, I uh, I went part time at the Financial Times um, you know several years into into the career when, when I had a column and I had a radio show and I had written maybe five books. Uh, so the, you know, I think it's, I, I was pretty lucky that said, I do think that there is something to be said for writing a book and not quitting your day job. I mean, you know, I I have friends who have quit their day jobs to write books and, um, it's, um, that's a hard road. Uh, so right. Yeah.
1: I, I think what you're saying is like they're, I mean, you were hedged back to your, back to your PPE, back to your, uh, literature, physics, and maths.
0: Um, yeah and i'm and and I'm still hedged because you know i I contemplate um there there was one point I don't want to share too much, but there was one point where it looked as though i I might have to quit the ft um because they they might have insisted on a certain way of working that I wasn't willing to do nothing, nothing sort of inappropriate or outrageous. Or it was just like, if you actually want me to do that, I'm not, you know, I don't want to work for the FT anymore. And I remember calling my, uh, you know, my literary agent and I called my uh, speaker agent and I said to both of them, I'm just about to have a meeting. I probably won't have to quit, but there is a chance I would have to quit. How do you feel about that? And both of them going, well, you know, it's up to you, it's fine by us. Um, you know, you're, you've, got, you've got your career as a speaker, you've got your career as a writer, doesn't really make any difference. Um, and, it, and in the end, of course, it was totally fine and everything was cool and, you know, I love working for the FT and there was no problem. But it was, it was nice to be in that moment where you think, oh, I'm gonna go and have this difficult conversation and um, actually my best alternative to a negotiated agreement, is completely fine. Yeah. Um, That's not that. I mean, that's very fortunate. And of course we, the same thing again with the pandemic was suddenly the, um, when suddenly the, the business of flying to places and giving speeches, which I love to do suddenly becomes impossible. Then uh, Pushkin who, uh, you know, I make the cautionary tales podcast with immediately said, wouldn't it be great if you could do a, a podcast about the pandemic, an emergency kind of pandemic-relevant uh, you know, pandemic relevant podcast? Have you got any stories? Can you do it? To which the answer is yes. And the BBC again said, well, normally we have these series runs of six or seven. Can you do a series run of 15? Can we just go do wall-to-wall? What are the numbers behind coronavirus? So the the wonderful thing about being hedged, quite apart from the fact of the, I think it's a very productive um, way to be creative, which I'm happy to talk about, but um, just the sheer risk management aspect, like you can be hit by a global pandemic and find yourself working harder than ever. Um, You know, that, I wouldn't say I saw the pandemic coming and planned accordingly, but um, you know, I got a nice lesson in the, the advantages of diversification. Right and and
1: you know as we as we started our our kind of just check in with each other before we started recording uh, you know I the, I was sharing sort of parts of my journey which were um, you know writing the book felt like I loved writing meltdown I love the the process of writing it I love the process of just you know bringing focus to these stories and and doing the interviews and kind of crafting the the arc of the book, I loved working with Androsh, my co-author. Um, I didn't love having to respond to like copy edits, but that's a very small, small part of the process. Um, yeah, nobody loves that bit. No, I know that's it's it's uh, it's good. Um, but you know, one of the things that that I was sharing with you is kind of after the book came out, I was sort of I was sort of afraid to promote it. I was kind of scared of. Um, you know, scared of putting work out there that wasn't great because I I really am proud of the work we did in in Meltdown and part of why it's so. But you know, books are have such a long cycle time in general that you have a lot of you can get a lot of feedback. You can have a lot of time to get things right, to change things, to correct things. Um, and I I think I was sort of afraid of putting stuff out there myself that was. Um, Mediocre, but I was also afraid of not being part of the conversation that I think is is was going on and is still going on about the way that uh, our world is changing and becoming more more complex. So I, I was in this kind of interesting paradox where I was I felt sort of stuck on both sides of by my fears. And one of the ways I dealt with that is by you know trying to go through. Um, gatekeepers basically so pitching to pitching to editors pitching to editorial folks um and that's just if that has a very uh well from in my experience at least and i i think it's not it's you know if you are on the inside and and you're sort of you know set up to write something or, or have some kind of you know um default expectation that you're writing something it's very you know that you're very well set up but if you're on the outside there's just not a lot of bandwidth to you know um kind of get get stories into into things and so i just found myself kind of hemmed in by these three by by these kind of forces and then and then the pandemic happened and for me it was like okay like i really don't have control and so i might as well just kind of get over my fears and i i'm oversimplifying that process um Obviously, there was a lot of you know a lot of therapy, a lot of reflection, a lot of journaling, a lot of doing the things that I think made it possible for for me to move um, for me to move forward and so i I appreciate kind of what you're saying about you know being out there begets begets opportunities, and I think that that's something that i'm I'm very much seeing now in a way that that I didn't before when I was afraid of being out there
0: yeah i mean i i I hear you about the fear of doing work that is not good enough. That I mean, there's this weird thing we were discussing before we before the, we started recording the conversation. That this is weird thing of being afraid that nobody notices and nobody cares, but also this terror of um, of being noticed that people will people will read this stuff. Um, whenever I have published a book, there's this. Um, you know, you want to get an extract of a book somewhere where lots of people are going to see it. You know, it would be great if, you know, a big, you know, major media outlet um, serialized the book or, or took a chunk out of the book and published it. Um, but uh, whenever that has happened, it has immediately caused terror. Um, well, they've just, there's this chunk of my book that's out there, kind of out of context. And, um, you know, what are people going to think of it? And, it, you know, it's 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 complicated. They're actually caring um, about the work, as I think you know, most creative people do, uh, there's a, a lot of different emotions going on. Um, I mean, one of the things that I have found helped me a lot is that discipline of the of the weekly column, where you just have to. Sorry, you know, there's a blank space. <laughs> when I first started this um, fellowship at, at the uh, at the Financial Times, saying. You know, being told, well, you know, we need to. I was on the editorial board. Uh, it's a, actually a great job for a really junior person because you can be supervised and you can screw up and people can come in and fix it. There's no problem. Whereas if you're actually out in the field reporting and you screw up, people might not realise. Um, right. I, what I was saying. But so what if? But what if we don't? Like we're supposed to file this copy by by five o'clock. And what if we? What if we don't? And you know, my boss is like, well. If we don't, then there's a blank page page in the newspaper tomorrow. So we do. <laughs> right. And that Oh, you just have to, you just have to do it. It's got to be there. And that was an extraordinary shift after, um, after Shell, where every document you wrote would just go into, you go into this sort of carbon copy hell of <laughs> being circulated, with, you know, managers and senior managers and, 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 and. Um, I, I, after a while, as a protest, I actually had a, um, I printed out a, a a copy of the, I think it's the Declaration of Independence, which um, has a typo in it. And um, there's the typo has been fixed with the kind of, somebody just sort of put a little arrow in to uh-huh. indicate and then just wrote the, I think it's the Declaration of Independence. Um, if the Declaration of Independence can have a typo just fixed afterwards, then i um, you know, we can have typos in this. So, that, sorry, I was just going to get off on this whole tangent. But what I'm saying is it's very, it was very useful to just have to produce and to say you just, it needs to be the best you can um, by 5 p.m. And do do good work, but it has to be right. in by 5 p.m. Uh, uh, that's really helpful. And that gets you into very helpful uh, habits, I think. Uh, so, and that that carries over into other things because you just get this general sense of, well, we've got to, we've got to ship this and, um, you know, hopefully it's, hopefully it's good enough and hopefully it's something that we can be proud of, but we don't actually have the option to wait, to wait another month or another six months or, or sometimes we don't even have the option to wait another five minutes. It's got to be done now.
1: Yeah. And I, I love that, um, you know, the you said it just then, the phrase good enough. It's got to be good enough. It's just got to be good enough. Um, and, you know, I, I I wrote this essay, which we'll include here in the show notes about the anxiety of doing mediocre work, which is about the podcast. So there's like a, a fair amount of kind of meta irony here. Um, but one of the, the, Ira Glass just has this incredible perspective on you know the way you get better is by doing work and and when you start your work is going to be mediocre and and you're going to know it's mediocre and so but you you just you have to produce it and and you know i think one of the other things about creative work that that i find is that it doesn't exist in a vacuum you know it's so hard to write something without an audience in mind it's so hard to write something that um that that no one else is going to read uh, for me at least i mean the kind of you know the 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 work is a dialectic, right? It it sort of emerges from the relationship between the writer and the reader, even if that relationship is kind of um, split over time, even if it doesn't happen immediately.
0: Yeah, no, I I think that's right, and and I think we could just see everybody seems to feel that way, don't they? Because that's why we have Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, and you know everyone is just. Um, People can't just, you know, think that this is a substandard croissant. They've got to get on Twitter and tell everybody that it's a substandard croissant. I mean, just even if they're not particularly trying to call out a, you know, or you know, get a refund or anything, this is like, I just want to share with the world my views about this croissant. That just seems to be the way we we function these days. So uh, that instinct of there needs to be an audience. Um, I, I'm not just, I'm not just journaling, I'm not just uh, talking to myself. Right. Um, but one thing that I've found interesting in my own experience is the, that I, because I have had the opportunity, the privilege of working in these different media, um, the, the way you're interacting with the audience, and for that matter, the way you're interacting with colleagues is, is quite different. And that difference, I think, is refreshing. So um, radio is a team effort other people are going and finding stories and bringing them to me and I'm kind of, I'm editing and offering opinions and, and polishing the final script. Um, with the podcast, I'm going, I'm doing my reading, doing my thinking. I'm writing the script, but then I send it off to editors and they polish it. Right. With the column, it's, it's very solitary. Um, there is a process of fact checking and editing, but it's, you know, it's sequential. Like it does it, its not iterative. Right. They don't come back to me and say, "Maybe you should re." I mean, very occasionally if there's a problem, but you know, I, yeah, I, I do my about bit, and thesis. then it goes down. It's
1: about—it's about the kind of yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, we just make sure you didn't libel anybody or make a mistake. So, um, so it, there's a production line. That's how newspapers get made. I mean, you think about it. A newspaper is, even a slim newspaper like the Financial Times, is the the length of a book in terms of the number of words every day. And it's read by hundreds of thousands of people, and they're going to be angry if you got something wrong. And yet it happens every single day. And we, you know, we obviously we make mistakes. We don't make many mistakes. That's extraordinary, that process. Um, yes. so, so there's that to be part of that production line in I I don't mean that in a, d- a demeaning way. I th- I'm very proud no. to be part of that. And it's, a, it's remarkable. But then the book is something else again. Because you can be sitting with a book for five years easily. Right, um, right. Just by yourself or, you know, with a couple of people that you dare to share it with. And you're putting together this, you know, incredibly complex three-dimensional puzzle as to how all this stuff fits together. And for me, I love having the opportunity to do all of those different things and to use each one of them as a break from the others. Uh, I have a TED Talk about, I think, I can't remember what it's called. I think it's called um, A Powerful Way to Boost Your Creativity or something. But the the way, what I think of that TED Talk as being about is, is what I call slow motion multitasking. Yeah. Which is just having these different projects and rotating between these different projects. And the more I look at it, the more I realize everybody I've ever admired uh, has, in fact, um, worked like that. That just seems to be the way people do things if they can possibly manage it
1: yeah that's a really i I love that and i love that i've seen i've watched that ted talk and i i I really i like it um
0: so the one where i have no hair that's the important detail
1: (laughs) Uh, um i'm curious we have about five minutes left um what would what would what would you like to use that time for?
0: Oh, well, I'm I'm easygoing, but I'm curious to ask you, if you don't mind, Chris, if you feel you haven't done this enough already to reflect on how what you've learned so far from the process of this podcast because I think we're, you know, you've done about 10 episodes, I'm not sure exactly which one this one is. Um, yeah. You know, you you, you know you've You've got over that initial anxiety, and you started talking to people. So, what have what have you gained so far? And would you recommend that everybody start their own podcast?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. The last, I I, I mean, both of those are 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 great questions. Gosh, what I have gained so far um, is, you know, just a continued appreciation of how fun it is to just try stuff and put stuff out there i mean i i love it um and so you know i don't have a huge audience yet hopefully you you know your the storm of tweets you you send out when this episode lands will will you know help increase that um I'll, I, but, I will do my but best for me, it is amazing like,
0: how how small the connection of you tweet to 160,000 people and the number of people who actually click on the tweet and do anything is uh dishearteningly small but um but yes sorry it's, go it's on. In, i will do my so best it's so interesting
1: isn't it um, well, and you and 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 you have a mailing list of like a, a a a gajillion people, if I'm not mistaken, too, right? I'm sure you get different kinds of an, and more engagement there. I would suspect.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's not it's it's certainly uh, shy of 160,000, but um, yeah, some people some people subscribe. Um, but yes, I will tell, I will spread the word for sure. But I I interrupted you. But, sorry. Yeah,
1: yeah, sorry. And I was just I was just being a, a a bit cheeky. But you know, I I think one of the things that I've learned is that like. One of my needs is to have impact and and you know, audience size is just one one way of measuring impact. And so I like doing this work because it resonates with people, and I love the format of audio. I think that it it is a way of connecting on a human level that is really powerful. Um, and then i I think the other thing I've learned is that if you, if you are putting yourself out there, if you are taking the, the kind of the the creative risk if you will um, that it gives you something to invite people to so you know you and i are 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 kind of you know friendly colleagues in parallel and we we connect every maybe couple of months um sometimes by email sometimes by by skype, but it's just so delightful to be able to you know sort of send you a message and and really have um have a container to to kind of um, just create the opportunity for us to have a conversation about something that I think you know frankly we're we're both really interested in and we're both passionate about and we have similar but different enough views that that there's a nice coming together around it. And so I just I really appreciate that opportunity and 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 kind of that possibility to just um, connect with people. Cause that's, that's the other, that's one of my other big needs in, in life is to just, you know, form, form and, and feel connected to smart, um, smart, thoughtful people.
0: Yeah. I, audio is a wonderful, uh, form for that. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, actually we, before we had this, before we started this conversation, I suggested we switch off the video on zoom. Uh, and it's, it's actually not just about bandwidth. There's also that sense that you, in a weird way, when you can't see somebody, you're communicating in a more intimate way. I think, and and when you're listening to that conversation, um, you know, people listening at home, the millions of listeners to uh, to to uh, our audio output. Um, yeah, I, I I love it. I love I love radio. The pictures are better on radio as well. <laughs>
1: Uh, and speaking of radio, I think you've got to do a a radio um, sound test right
0: now. Is I, that some, right? Some nice some nice people in New, they're they're from New Zealand, so they'll be cool, I'm sure. But yes, some nice people from New Zealand are going to interview me in a couple of days, and they said that they were going to call uh, about now to test the line. So um, they won't get through, but they'll get through in two minutes when we finished. It'll be fine.
1: Wonderful. Um, well, Tim, I want to say thank you. Um, I've, I've enjoyed our conversations over the years. Um, I've enjoyed, uh, you know, I think how, let's see, uh, how, how open you are because, you know, I sort of feel like in, in, in many ways I've arrived at these ideas, um, uh, with a different perspective and, and you've been, um, kind of just very willing to sort of dive in and, and be an, uh, an intellectual, you know, partner in that. And I think you've, you've taken me seriously, which is a, as a, you know, younger person and as a, as a new, you know, newer writer, I think is, is really important. And I, I just want you to know that I really appreciate that.
0: Oh, well, it's very kind of you to say, but you, you've earned that Chris, because your, your work with Andrus is, uh, is fantastic so uh you know that meltdown speaks for itself so there's no doubt that and, and i know that i am not the only person who who loves that book i know my colleagues at the financial times who've uh, who've backed it repeatedly and undeservedly uh you know agree so um yes you, you don't need to thank me for that but um but thank you for the invitation to to jump on the podcast and and talk you've spoken to some fantastic people I feel very privileged to be to be on the guest list so thank you
1: well you're welcome Tim um, I'll talk to you soon
0: uh, I will talk to you soon yeah absolutely thanks again
1: thanks for listening to stay in the loop about new episodes and to be eligible for my periodic book bundle giveaways sign up for the breakdown newsletter at chrisclearfield.com slash giveaway so what's this giveaway? Every few months, I bundle together three or four influential books, often written or recommended by guests from the show, and I give them away to a few lucky listeners. I'll include a signed copy of Meltdown, and because I'm friends with many of my fellow authors, I try to get their books signed as well, so you definitely don't want to miss out on that. Go to chrisclearfield.com giveaway to get on the list. Finally, join your fellow listeners. Subscribe to the show and share it with your friends. And if you love the show, Give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. Even one extra review helps us get an edge on the algorithm so more people can find us. And before we roll the credits, remember, if you're a business owner ready to transform your business and your life, find out more about my approach to coaching and sign up for a free intro session at chrisclearfield.com slash make the leap. That's all one word, make the leap. The breakdown with Chris Clearfield is a team effort. The inimitable Ray is our assistant producer and makes everything run smoothly. Gabe Turner and Claire Skinner help make the amazing content here and on my newsletter, available at chrisclearfield.com slash the breakdown. Laura Stack is our editor, and our theme was composed by the creative team at Spiky Blimp. Thanks so much for listening, and be well until our next breakdown.